Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. I want you to take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verse 14 through verse 19. We will study tonight the tragic uh, murder and martyrdom of John the Baptist, a text that I have entitled, What Do You Get for Faithful Service to God? Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 14 and studying through verse 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he, he, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. What are the rewards and spiritual perks for faithfully serving our Lord? What are the blessings that we receive for a life of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus will actually address this later in Mark's gospel, where in chapter 10, verse 29 and verse 30, he says, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. 
When you listen to those words of Jesus, one thing kind of seems to be out of place, doesn't it? The, the word persecutions. You see what Jesus is wanting us to understand, that sometimes the spiritual rewards and benefits for faithfully saving the Lord is persecutions. In fact, sometimes the reward for serving our Lord can be even the loss of your life. In fact, in some cases, you may actually have your head served up on a platter. In March of this year in Pakistan, a man by the name of Shabazz Hati, age 42, and the only Christian serving in the Pakistan cabinet, was brutally murdered when at least four gunmen pillaged his body with bullets when he was later discovered he was lying in a massive pool of his own blood. Al-Qaeda quickly uh, claimed responsibility for his assassination. And a note was found near his body from those who murdered him, which said this, and I quote, This is a fitting lesson for the world of infidelity, the crusaders, the Jews, and their aides. This is the fitting end of the accursed one, which will serve as an example to others. And now with the blessing and aid of Allah, the Mujahideen will send all of you one by one to hell. For his part, Shabazz Hati knew the risk that he was taking as a publicly uh, devoted follower of King Jesus. In fact, he made a video just a few weeks before his assassination, and in that video he said this, and I quote, I want to share that I believe in Jesus Christ who has given his own life for me. I know what is the meaning of the cross, and I'm ready to die. And he did. You see, you may lose your life for faithfully serving King Jesus, and again, you may actually lose your head as John the Baptist found out. Mark uh, 6, 14 through 29 is something of a parenthesis. And it's also something of a flashback that records both the imprisonment of John and also the execution of John. It is interesting to note that when you study Mark's gospel, there are only two texts in the entire 16 chapters that do not deal directly with either the ministry or the teaching of Jesus. And both of them are a reference to John the Baptist. Here in chapter 6 and also in chapter 1, verse 2 through verse 8, where he is introduced as the forerunner of our Lord. In fact, what you discover in Mark's gospel and what you really discover in the life of Jesus is that John was his forerunner, both in terms of his message but also in terms of his death as well. Mark's account of John's death is parallel, though you actually have the most full account right here. But you do find it discussed also in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, and a very brief account in Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Now, back in chapter 6, verse 11, Jesus has warned the twelve apostles that their preaching would not always be welcomed. And if there was any doubt to the truth of that, John now serves as a wonderful example that the cost of discipleship and the cost of following Jesus and the cost of preaching the gospel sometimes can indeed be very, very great. There are a number of valuable lessons we can learn from this tragic story, this tragic miscarriage of justice. And again, keep in mind that I think uh, Mark puts it here strategically to kind of lay the foundation for what we anticipate may also happen to one even greater than John later in the gospel, that being, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In other words, both men are going to die as a result of a miscarriage of justice. And in both cases, cowardly men are going to capitulate to pressure and put to death God's man. So let me build our study around three ideas this evening. Number one, when you faithfully serve our God, you can expect that some will fear you. In other words, when a man or woman does the work of God, they can anticipate a variety of responses. Now, sometimes when we do the work of the Lord, people praise us. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said in Matthew 5:16, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So sometimes people see our good works and they praise us. But other times people see our good works and they oppose us. They reject us, as we see in chapter 6, verse 11. They may even fear us, as we see in the story of the death of John the Baptist. In other words, they may not like what you say. They may oppose what you do. And yet at the same time, amazingly, they cannot deny that God is at work in your life and through the ministry that he has given you. That's exactly what we find here in the story of John the Baptist and a man that I believe Mark uh, sarcastically refers to as King Herod. Uh, Actually, he never received that title from Rome. He asked for it on a number of occasions, but was turned down both by Caesar Augustus and later by Caligula. And so John uh, is uh, here uh, being confronted with and is in opposition to a man named uh, Herod. Uh, He did demand that the people call him uh, King Herod, but he never, ever received that title from Rome. Now, if you've ever studied the Bible very much, you know that there are Herods everywhere. In fact, I've looked at some family trees, and by the way, they don't always fork at the right place and sometimes even come back in, as we're going to see tonight. But it's really difficult to try to get your arms around them. So let me give it my best shot and try to unravel this for you this evening. The King Herod that's in our story is actually no king at all. He is Herod Antipas. Uh, He is a tetrarch, and the word tetrarch means a fourth. And so what you discover is his father... Herod the Great, who reigned from 37 B.C. to 4 B.C., he is the one who was reigning over Israel when Jesus was born. He is the one who massacred the Bethlehem babes, Herod the Great. Well, when he died in 4 B.C., his kingdom was divided into four parts. And Herod Antipas received a portion of his kingdom. He received a rule over Galilee and over Perea, where he would reign until A.D. 39. Now, early in his reign, he requested from Caesar Augustus the title of king, and he was soundly turned down. But later, his nephew, Herod Agrippa, did receive the title of king from the lunatic emperor Caligula. And Caligula in A.D. 37 made Herod Agrippa uh, a king, at least in title. Well, unfortunately, Herodias, uh, the power-grabbing adulteress uh, behind the scenes of Herod Antipas, she kept egging him on, egging him on, and egging him on. So he actually left um, Israel. Made his way to Rome, but he'd already been set up by Agrippa. So he comes before Caligula, 
demands the title once more, or at least requests the title of king, he is not only turned down, he is exiled. And he will die in exile, being exiled in the latter part of the 30s, around 39 uh, A.D. By the way, the only noble thing I can tell you about Herodias, she went with him. So even though she had been this conniving, evil, oh, I just need to be careful tonight, um, need to be sanctified in my words, evil woman, she at least stayed with her husband to the bitter end. Well, it's no wonder then that this henpecked, wicked politician did not know what to do with a man like John the Baptist. Our text tells us down in verse 20, which we will get to in just a moment, that he feared him, and also that he was greatly perplexed. The NIV says he was puzzled by him. And so what is it then, as we step into this mess of confusion and intrigue, what is it that we can learn with respect to the fact that some are indeed going to fear you? Well, first of all, let your good works honor you. Verse 14, King Herod had heard of it. What had he heard of? Well, he had heard of what was going on in verse 12 and verse 13. So they, that is the twelve, the apostles, went out, proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons. They anointed with oil those who were sick and healed them. Herod heard of it. And to be precise, he heard of it for Jesus' name had become Known, And so these miraculous works are being done both by Jesus and now through the apostles has made its way into the throne room of this man who calls himself King Herod. It's interesting. Just like the hometown of Jesus at Nazareth, they never denied the miracles. They never denied them. And just like the hometown of Jesus, the miracles do not lead King Herod, his wife, or anyone else in his court, as far as we know, to faith in Jesus. So Herod hears that there's a prophet running around Galilee. Uh, he is healing people. Uh, he is casting out demons. And so he perhaps calls an emergency uh, cabinet meeting and maybe even took a poll to find out what is it that we should understand. What is the buzz? about this new prophet named Jesus. And basically, uh, three leading opinions surface and are put on the table. Number one, it is John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's option number one. Number two, he is Elijah. Number three, he is a prophet like those of old. In other words, preaching and doing the work of the kingdom has caused serious jitters in Herod's court and his kingdom. And again, like Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, Herod wondered at the source of his miraculous power. And actually, he comes closer to the truth than do the Nazarenes. But still, his conclusion is inadequate. What I would want you to see, first of all, is simply this. Jesus, John, the Twelve, Elijah, the prophets, they allowed their good works to honor them. So evident were their good works that even their enemies could not deny them. Sometimes I say to men that they ought to conduct themselves with uh, other women in such a way that, that their wife knows, their children know, their friends know, even their enemies know. That they are indeed a one-woman kind of man. When it came to Jesus and, and the twelve and John, their friends knew. 
Their family knew, and even their enemies knew, these are indeed men of God. Let your good works honor you. But secondly, and I have fun with this one, let your good works haunt them. As we see, public opinion has narrowed the actions of the identity of Jesus to three. Jesus is either John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Uh, he is that prophet Elijah that was predicted in Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4. Or he is a, a prophet. And it seems to be that the generally held opinion was among the common people, he is a prophet. And basically it seems everyone agreed with that except one. Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa did not believe that he was a prophet. No, verse 16 tells us very clearly. But when Herod heard of this, he said, John, and now we learn why, whom I beheaded has been raised. In other words, Herod was convinced and he was also haunted that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. John the Baptist. A miracle child born to a priest named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth in their old age, according to Luke chapter 1. He was, we learn from Luke, a man uniquely called by God from his mother's womb. Something I love to remind myself of again and again when asked the question, Jesus, who is the greatest person who ever lived? Jesus does not hesitate. Oh, that's easy. The greatest man who's ever been born, natural of a woman, was John the Baptist. And so he's a miracle child. He was called from his mother's womb. He was a powerful preacher of repentance. Jesus said he was the greatest man who ever lived, and Herod had wickedly put him to death, and it rightly haunted him. You see, John was a man of great courage and, and moral fiber. Herod wasn't. John was a man who loved God and boldly proclaimed his word. Herod didn't. John denounced sin wherever he saw it and called people to repentance and a radical change of life. But Herod would do neither. And in the end, he murders an innocent man of God, God's prophet. And it haunted him, and rightly so. Herod had on his hands John's Blood. And I would just simply apply it in this way. We don't need to defend ourselves when we walk with God privately and publicly. We don't need to respond to blogs. We don't need to respond to editorials. We don't need to respond in almost every instance to gossip. No. We don't need to utilize methods of violence or coercion as we represent the Lord Jesus and extend his kingdom. Our good works will honor us, and our good works will halt those who oppose us, if not now, at least in eternity. And so the Bible says what you get for faithful service to God will expect that some people will actually fear you. They'll be scared of you. But number two, expect that some people will try to stop you. Verses 17 through 20 record the lurid events that lead to the execution of God's man named John. It's a all too familiar story. This, this story could have been written easily in 2011. In other words, when people say, oh, our world is, is so much different than it was back then and so much more wicked than it was back then, you just haven't read the Bible. You just have not familiarized yourself with Scripture. We're about to read a story of sex, power, pride, lust, and revenge. 
We're about to read a story of a man who was weak and paranoid named Herod who married a conniving woman named Herodias who was indeed conniving, ruthless, and who would stop at absolutely nothing to get her way. She would even prostitute her own daughter and take the life of the man of God to get her way. No, you almost feel dirty reading these verses. Because they are seedy and they are slimy. Jerry Springer has nothing on the Herods. Jersey Shore has nothing on the Herods. All My Children has nothing on the Herods. Modern Family has nothing on the Herods. They are all a bunch of preschoolers compared to this man and his family in terms of a divorce, adultery, incest, drunkenness, striptease dancing, and murder. It was a first century zoo of a family. And unfortunately, John got caught up in all of this. This family that was sin on steroids, a bunch of misfits, is going to be responsible for bringing down God's man. Yes, they're haunted by a guilty conscience. It will continue to haunt them for not doing the right thing. Well, what happens when people try to stop you? Well, there are a couple of avenues they may take. First of all, guilt will drive some people to oppose you. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison. Why? For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Now, what is the gist of the bizarre situation we find ourselves here uh, confronted with. Well, verse 17 kind of gives you the synopsis, but here we go. Herod Antipas had a niece, and his niece, her name was Herodias. I, I love to comment that they were not very creative with names back then. And so you've got Herodias, you've got Herod this one, Herod that one, Herod the other one. And so he has a niece named Herodias, all right? She is married to his half-brother, Philip, which means not only is she his niece, she is also his sister-in-law, all right? So Philip is in Rome. Herod Antipas goes to Rome. He meets Herodias, his niece, his sister-in-law. Well, one or the other seduced the other. We don't know for sure, but somehow they get involved. And as a result of their adulterous relationship, she will leave her husband, Philip, and she will marry Herod. So Herod is now married to his niece, to his former sister-in-law, and now his whoring, adulterous wife. You can't make stuff up like this. You cannot make up stuff like this. Well, you say, well, what was the fallout? Oh, it was bad. 
First of all, Herodias divorced Philip, and that caused trouble because Philip was now ticked off, uh, and I can understand that, with his half-brother. Further, so that he could marry Herodias, he divorced his first wife. Uh, she was the daughter of Aretas IV, who was the ruler of the neighboring Nabataean Empire. That ticked him off because he has now had his daughter made to look like a fool. And eventually, they will go to war, and Aretas will kick Herod the Antipas in the tail, and it will not be good. In fact, that is also part of what lays the foundation for his dismissal and uh, his exile by Caligula later around A.D. 39. So, Philip is not happy. Uh, Aretas is not happy. And then, above all, John the Baptist is not happy. And so John the Baptist begins to quote scripture, such as Leviticus 18:16. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. Her, it, it, it is your brother's nakedness. In other words, that woman in intercourse belongs to your brother, not to you. Again, Leviticus 20, 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless. And so you've got now not only an act of adultery, you've also got an act of incest. And John just found this to be too much. And so in verse 18, he begins to drop the hammer for John. And don't miss the tense of the verb now. For John had been saying... In other words, how many times did John confront Herod in his sin? Well, this much we know, more than once. And knowing John, as we learn from the Bible, I bet more than twice. In other words, every opportunity he had, he looked at Herod in the face and said, You're in sin. You're in adultery. You're in incest. You need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent. And so repeatedly he confronts him with this pronouncement. And amazingly... Herod takes it. At least Herod, for this brief period of time, apparently still had a conscience. But a conscience that does not respond to God's Word will become a hardened and seared conscience. Herodias, on the other hand, evidently had no conscience at all. And so this first century Jezebel, in verse 19, we learn, had a grudge against him. And she wanted to put him to death, but she could not. In other words, Herod had a problem. On the one hand, he is being confronted by God's man concerning his sin, and he seems to at least uh, in some way be convicted by it. On the other hand, he is married to a Jezebel with whom he sleeps every single night. And so he has himself between two and just does not know what to do. So he has John arrested. You say, why do you think he had him arrested and in prison? I think in part, as the text says, to keep him safe. I think Herodias would have sent out the royal hit squad. And I think she would have seen to it that John had some unfortunate accident, like drowning himself while he baptized people in the Jordan. Are eating the wrong kind of locusts and wild honey and dying from food poisoning. She would have taken him out in some way. And so Herod, knowing that he was right, arrests him, in, imprisons him, and keeps him safe. In fact, verse 20, as you see in your notes, is an amazing verse. Herod, number one, feared John. Number two, he knew he was a righteous and holy man. Number three, he kept him safe. Number four, he must have been a, a, a glutton for punishment. He kept hearing. He kept listening to him. 
Number five, he was greatly perplexed. The word means distressed, anxious, puzzled, disturbed, and yet put that together with finally, he heard him gladly. Now, I can't explain all that except to say I've known some men that have lived in sin, and yet every Sunday morning they flip on the, the TV and they listen to a faithful gospel preacher, or, or they know they're in sin, and yet they come to church week after week and let them just brutalize them at least for a time. And so Herod is between two hard places. John, on the other hand, has no fear of the powerful. He has no fear of the influential. He boldly confronts them in their sin. But Herod, in contrast, feared and was fascinated by John. He found a strange attraction to his preaching. He could not help but listen. But he was too weak and sinful to obey John's Message. He just did not know what to do with John. But Herodias did. And so, yes, guilt will drive some to oppose you, but hatred will drive others to oppose you. Verse 19 is succinct and to the point. And Herodias, number one, had a grudge against him. And number two, she wanted to put him to death. But number three, she could not. Number one, she had a grudge against John the Baptist. The word simply means to have it in for someone. She wanted to get him. Secondly, she wanted to put him to death. But thirdly, she could not. And why? Because her weak husband kept him safe in prison. So any assassination plan would have to be put on hold. The wonderful New Testament scholar T.W. Manson says it very well. I quote, Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. And so for a brief period of time, he was safe in prison, but all she needed was an opportune moment. And she was willing to wait until that moment presented itself. You know, it's very insightful to draw a contrast in terms of demeanor and character and lifestyle between uh, Herod the Great and, uh, or Herod Antipas, excuse me, and John the Baptist. By the way, as I was going back over my notes again uh, yesterday, we caught a significant typographical error and is in the very first one so we have corrected it for future manuscripts so you have one of the not the original but one of the early manuscripts so you could perhaps do a little textual criticism here but uh, under the first category where it says john the baptist uh, a gorgeously robed ruler and haired antipas a hair coated prophet flip those uh, I'm sure you recognize the uh, uh, the error there. And so flip those in your notes so that it correctly says John the Baptist, a hair-coated prophet, Herod Antipas, a gorgeously robed ruler. And then it's correct from on there. John the Baptist, austere and simple, Herod Antipas, flamboyant and ornate. John righteous, Herod Antipas, debaucherous. John the Baptist, a prophet without price, Herod Antipas, a man who could be bought. John the Baptist, a man of moral courage and with a clear conscience. Herod Antipas, spineless coward and a troubled conscience. John the Baptist maintained his integrity, but he lost his head. But Herod Antipas forfeited his integrity and lost his soul. John the Baptist, a man of the spirit. Herod Antipas, a man of the flesh. And by the way, later, you could almost draw the exact same contrast between a man named Jesus and a man named Pilate. 
So what do you get for faithful service to God? Expect that some will fear you. Expect that some will try to stop you. And number three, expect that some will attempt to destroy you. Act three of this theatrical tragedy. You know, at this point in the story, if you didn't know the rest of it yet, you'd almost intuitively feel, you know, things are, things are just not going to work out well for John. And you would be right. It's often attributed to William Shakespeare, but actually a man named William Congreve in a play entitled The Morning Bride made the provocative statement, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And though Herodias had not been rejected by John as a lover, John had condemned her as a treacherous and adulterous woman, and she'd had all she could take. And so John had called her out, and now she will take her revenge. And again, it's utterly amazing how far she will go. It was made famous in one of the Star Trek movies, Revenge is Best Served Cold. And in John's case, it will be served on a cold silver platter with his head attached to it. Again, you think of Herodias, and you cannot help but think of Jezebel. Uh, that wicked queen who egged on Ahab, who tried unsuccessfully to kill a man named Elijah, but was successful in murdering a man by the name of Naboth. So, some will attempt to destroy you. Well, note first of all, except that the ungodly will use ungodly means to get you, verse 21. But when an opportunity came, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee... Herodias' daughter came in and danced, and she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Herod throws a birthday bash for himself. Interestingly, I learned in my study that Jews of the ancient world viewed birthday celebrations as pagan, and they would not celebrate one's birthday. Herod, though, didn't care. And so he has a big uh, bash, and he brings in all the important people, all the movers and shakers of his little kingdom. Uh, the text says they were his nobles. The NIV translates that word, high officials. Uh, they were his military commanders, and they were the leading men of Galilee. So he has a rowdy stag birthday party, no doubt, lots of drinking, lots of girls. And uh, Herodias had been watching. And she knew the debaucherous nature of this man that she was married to. And so verse 22, she begins to hatch her plan. The text says the daughter of Herodias entered the room filled with men. I don't think we doubt at all that she was sent there by her mother. We later learn from Josephus that her name was Salome. And Salome comes in. We learn that she was the daughter of Philip and of Herodias. And so she comes in. And she dances in a way that pleases Herod and his guests. No doubt she was sensual and no doubt she was seductive, appealing to the lustful desires and passions of the room full of unregenerate and pagan men. Most Bible scholars agree that she probably was a teenager, which says something more about the depraved nature of these men. And as the daughter of Herodias and Philip, she is Herod's stepdaughter and also his niece, but what I want you to see is just how far this woman, Herodias, is willing to go. She does not mind surrendering the reputation and dignity of her own daughter 
if it will result in her getting the head of John the Baptist. Salome's dance, it says in verse 22, pleased Herod and his guest. In fact, he was so moved, he says, ask whatever you wish, and I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. He parrots a proverbial saying that you find back in Esther chapter 5, verses 2 and verse 3. Uh, folks, he could not have done this, by the way. He's just uh, uttering basically a hyperbolic promise to do something nice for her. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, first of all, it wasn't his kingdom to give. He was just a petty tetrarch under the authority of the Caesars in Rome. And it was a colloquial, proverbial saying wherein you say to someone, you know, tell me what you'd like to do. I'll do anything. Of course, we know they don't mean they'll do anything. But it does mean they will do something very, very nice. And so in essence, he says, I, I make a binding promise to you to provide for you a generous gift in response to this performance. And so the ungodly has used ungodly means to get what she wants. And this is, again, what amazes me in this whole story, which I spent many, many weeks working through. God God in his mysterious providence allows all this to happen. Don't forget, God is not asleep. He's not on vacation. He's not unaware of this. God knows what is happening here, and he allows it. He lets it happen. So accept that the ungodly will use ungodly means to get you. Secondly, accept that the ungodly may get your head on a platter. Spurgeon says, quote, a man is not to be estimated according to his rank, but according to his character. Truer words were never spoken. Still, a courageous prophet is undone and meets his end at the hands of a devious wife and a manipulated daughter and a cowardly husband. Verse 24, Salome goes to mommy and says, for what should I ask? She doesn't hesitate, does she? The head of John the Baptist. Verse 25, immediately with haste, she goes and says, I want at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, this, brothers and sisters, is one of those times when it's good for you to be able to read Greek. Because in the Greek text, she actually backloads the statement, John the Baptist. Literally, she says, I desire that you give me immediately... On a platter, the head of John the Baptist. The phrase, the head of John the Baptist, is the last phrase in that sentence. And it also appears that uh, Salome adds the phrase, on a platter. Her mother didn't say that. She says that. Like mother, like daughter. Verse 26, Herod was sad but spineless and could not afford to lose face in front of his guest. And so verse 27 says, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison. And then verse 28, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. You see the sequence, don't you? The executioner brings it to Herod. Harry gives it to Salome, and this teenage girl proudly walks into the chamber of her mother and says, Here it is. Here it is. The head of John the Baptist. Verse 29 is anticlimactic, isn't it? And really sad beyond words when his disciples heard of it. They came. 
They took his body and they laid it in a tomb. Herod feared displeasing his wife and losing face with man more than he feared God. Pride took him down just like it took down Adam and Satan. And Herodias feared and hated John because he was right and she knew it. He was a nuisance to her conscience and a cancer to her reputation. His head had to go and he had to have it. She had to have it on a platter. And thinking that would solve all her problems, she saw to it. And at the end, she felt like, haven't I won the day? Again, as I worked on this message, and again, I'm telling you, I worked on this thing for weeks. It, it haunts me. It grieves me. John the Baptist. Like Jesus, he dies in his early 30s. I had not thought about it before. His public ministry probably lasted no more than one year. What, day one and a half at the most? But probably no more than a year. Bible says he never performed a single miracle. And Jesus says of those born naturally of a woman, none is greater than John. So what can we conclude very quickly? Well, number one, bad things do happen to good people. Bad things do happen to good people. Number two, life is often unfair. My boys, if you were to ask them what was your daddy's favorite statement when you were growing up, they would not hesitate. Life isn't fair. Life isn't fair, life isn't fair, life isn't fair. And brothers and sisters, guess what? Life isn't fair. Number three, the righteous do suffer. Number four, sometimes good things happen to bad people. But number five, never forget God sees and God knows. Matthew chapter 14, verses 12 through 13, record for us the reaction of Jesus when he heard of the death of his cousin, his friend and forerunner, John, the text says, and his disciples came and they took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, when Jesus heard about the beheading of John the Baptist, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. They bring the news to Jesus. John is dead. Herod has beheaded him. Jesus uh, says, I, uh, I'm going to go away for a while. Can we? No, no, no. The Son of God, I need to be alone. So he withdraws. I have no doubt that he grieved. I have no doubt that he hurt. I have no doubt that he wept. And I also have no doubt he did not forget. Listen to Luke chapter 13, verse 32 and 33, and the opinion Jesus held of Herod. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons. I perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Herod had sent word, tell Jesus I want to see him. And Jesus sent word back to Herod, you stick it in your ear, big boy. I'm not coming to see you. I'm not paying attention to you. I've got my task. I've got my duty. And I will accomplish it. Later, it is this Herod that Jesus appears before in Luke 23. Remember, Pilate wanted to punt. So he says, send him to Herod. In verse 8 and verse 9 of Luke 23, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, and this is the only time in the Bible 
that Jesus does the following. He gave him no answer. One time in all the Bible, you have Jesus encountering someone and refusing to say even a single word to them. No, Jesus saw and Jesus remembered and he did not forget. So let's conclude on a more positive note. Death cannot silence a life, can it? Murdering someone will not put an end to their witness and their testimony. Never forget the words, being dead, yet he still speaks. And I would remind you tonight, no one names their son Herod. No one. But millions around the world bear the name of John. In fact, one's tombstone may serve as a trumpet, one's grave, a megaphone of a life well lived for the glory of a great king whose name is Jesus. The fact is, John is just one of many of the martyrs throughout church history who ring loud and clear of their commitment to Christ. And they, as choice servants of Jesus, who died the death of a martyr, are a wonderful source of strength and encouragement to you and to me not to faint, not to quit, not to get discouraged, and not drop out of the race. No, Herod and Herodias may have received John's head on a platter, but our Lord received his soul into heaven for all eternity. John lost his head, but Herod and Herodias lost their souls. So in the end, you tell me who won and who lost. No, bad things do happen to good people. But great things ultimately happen to all those who put it all on the line, even their head on a platter, for the truth of God's word and the glory of his name. John the Baptist may have lost on this day, but he won for all of eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this portion of your word, though, as I studied it over many, many hours. There were times when I wept. There were times when I was grieved. There were times when I did not understand why in the world would you let your great prophet John minister just a little over a year be unjustly imprisoned and beheaded by a witch, an evil, evil woman, and a gutless, cowardless wimp of a man. Why would you allow that? I, I still don't know. But then again, I don't have to know. I can trust you even when I don't understand. I can even trust you when I don't like the outcome and I suspect that when I get to heaven and I hopefully get to see John John will look me in the face and with a big smile on his face will say of my life and ministry no regrets no regrets no regrets and so Lord may I likewise live a life like John Fearing you more than I would fear any man. Trusting you even when I don't understand. And believing in the end, the God of all the earth will do right. I believe that. Now give me and my brothers and sisters the strength to live that out until we, like John, are in your presence forever and ever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.